Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries. I'm your host, John, and today we're going to be discussing the Folklore Bestiary presented by the Merry Mushman right after this music. So, the Bestiary of Folklore-inspired monsters is written by a cavalcade of talented folks and presented by the Merry Mushman, Eric Noyden and Oliver Rivenu of Nock fame. And you'll have no doubt heard me raving about Nock in previous videos. If you haven't checked it out yet, then you really should do. Eric was kind enough to reach out to me and send me a preview copy of their latest work, although they've not asked me to do any, like, ad reads or give any particular impression they're just interested to hear what i have to say on this but to be perfectly honest i'd already backed the the full copy on kickstarter based on their brilliant previous work in the knock zine now by the time this video goes out there'll be about a week left on the kickstarter so you've still got a bit of time to get involved with that as of time of recording and there'll be a link in the description down below I'm looking at a preview of the Old School Essentials version of the Bestiary, but there is also a 5e version that is being released as part of the Kickstarter, if the latest version of D&D is more your speed. Okay, so if we have a look at the preview copy, it contains about 17 monsters, with each one laid out in a similar format. We get a title page we're looking at the Bassajan here which has a brief summary of the legend and lore associated with the creature and normally we get a nice picture done in a sort of cartoon style which is really great and like I say mirrors the sort of layout and professional standards that we've come to expect from the Nox zine you then tend to get a stat block so here we've got the old school essentials stat block and you get some random additional information like we've got a bit on passenger names here and their hair and you also tend to get either like a random chart or some other like hooks or bits of flavor that you can throw in some of the creatures do have additional extras with them such as the lucarcol a gargantuan snail that haunted the caves below the village of Hastings in southern france the snail is so big that you actually get a great double page spread that you can see here done in the classic osr faint blue style of map allowing you to explore the interior of the enormous escargot and i think this is great and it's these little flecks of genius that let me know that the whole book is going to be a really great addition to anyone's gaming library Okay, so we're going to have a quick look through this preview PDF now. There'll be some blank space and filler because, like I say, this isn't the finished book, but it's already looking pretty impressive. Now, because of the wide expanse of folklore and myth covered by all of these mods and the expansive material, even in this preview, we're not going to be able to look in depth at all of them. But I'm just going to have a flick through, chat a little bit about the various monsters that are in the preview document and highlight a few of my favorites. So, as we said earlier, here is the Bassajon, which is a, a rustic giant that humans are reputed to have stolen the secrets of breeding animals and farming from. And you get all of this in this little description box just below the name here. 
And I like the fact that there's a, a sort of little description here. And they've even got a, a little pronunciation guide here, which tells me that unlike how I've been pronouncing it, it should be pronounced Bachayayon, which to, to be honest, I struggle to pronounce, but that's on me. But I like the fact you get a little description so you don't have to read all the lore unless you want to. We had a lovely piece of artwork here showing this large sort of wizened, very natural sort of, I suppose, partially sort of like wild man of the woods looking giant with these bones matted into his beard, carrying a gnarled wooden staff. If we move on, we are told that the Bassendea are the Bassagen females. I know I'm pronouncing this wrong, but I just find it easier to pronounce like that. We're told that the females are extremely rare, which puts me in the mind of the, the Antwives a little bit from Tolkien's uh, mythology. We have details of the types of names they use. So Artsajun, Berijun, Gorijun, etc. We then get a description of them. Ten foot tall humanoids, silky massive beard and hair covering their body, long arms and legs. In this version, we get the old school essential stat block, although the fifth edition version will have the fifth edition stat block, obviously. And we get some special abilities that they have. So we're told that if a target is hit by both of their slap attacks in the same round, they grab and bite the target's face for 2d8 automatic damage. They have a mountain staff, which they can use like a pole to leap and run. And they actually like lose some of their movement if it's lost. We're told that they are familiar with nature and the ways of the wild, the whisper of the trees, the gurgle of the streams, etc. And they're aware of all things natural happening in their domain. But they can also go into a deep sleep where they become indistinguishable from a mossy rock. We're also told as this little bit of extra flavour that I said you get from these monsters that a secret known only to a few is that they are very fond of games and riddles, but they're not terribly good at them. And there's a little sketch up here in the top right of the page, which may or may not be replaced by a sort of finished piece of artwork in the final version. But I actually quite like the sketch version, to be honest. It's nice to see the sort of evolution from this sketch to the finished piece that we have on the previous pages. We're then told that Hatchkos are seven foot to eight foot tall humanoids are the result of a union of Bassagen and human women. And we get a race as a class, class if you want to play one of these Hatchkos. And we also get down here some hooks for bringing these creatures into your games. There's going to be some sort of map on the next page, but that's not included at the moment. Next are the Kavota, who are shy, diminutive gnomes dwelling in the low countries, always out of sight from mundane people, but never too far either. Love to drink and will help someone in need for the exchange of good beer or a bit of uh, cheap liquor. And we get this lovely cartoon image of these like, rosy-cheeked, no doubt from the hooch, gnomes with the stereotypical sort of red pointy hats on. We get their stat block again, some hooks, and we're told there are five distinct families of the Kabuta. There's the Roduin family, merry drinkers and musicians, the Kaverdisgen family, who live quietly in a forgotten cave under a tulip field, practicing dark arts of alchemy, 
the Smamaluks, a family of kabooters who are master brewers, but also engage in a bit of smuggling. And the Shifterdekirup family, who make their home, according to this, in crumbling watermills and abandoned homesteads, and are known for stealing beer and food. And then we have the Frokenjul family, who live in an old monastery, where they, they've driven out the sort of holy people who live in there. And these, although it tends to describe these five families, there's also sort of inherent plot hooks rolled in there. So like I say with the uh, Frolinkenjur family, which, yes, I'm struggling to pronounce, living in this old monastery, they've driven out the holy people who were there before, and they want back in. So you can easily build an adventure around that. We get a couple of random tables. We get a D6 random table telling you where you can find them. And then we get a D20 table of random belongings that you might find on a Kabuto. And again, we have this lovely sort of sketch up here, which leads me to believe that hopefully these sketches are actually going to be included in the final book. So I think that's a lovely little bit of page decoration and ties in nicely to the sort of finished works, as I've just said. We then have the Bukavats, who are said to live in lakes and pools of Serbia. They're a mysterious amphibian beast, often found living in nests. It's a six-legged monstrosity, as tall as a man, with ram-like horns on its head, moves at an uncanny speed underwater and in total silence. They only hunt at night and stay in their nests during the day. We get a random table of what loot floats in their domain, Obviously the stat block and some of their abilities. And we get a D6 table of why are they here? What does their lair look like? And some additional plot hooks. We then move on to the Lu Karkol, which I mentioned earlier. The gargantuan snail. We're told that it's 100 feet long with an 80 foot shell. It shells as hard as the hardest rock. And its body is covered with bristles. It has numerous tentacles it can attack with. Only takes half damage from mundane weapons, although it shies and flees away from daylight. But it is covered in stinging bristles, and a few times a day it can breathe out this vile cone of sticky acidic slime. And we get again this lovely picture up here on the right hand side where you can see the tiny figures of normal people to give you a sense of scale of this massive creature. We get some plot hooks for it and the brilliant map that I was talking about earlier where you can effectively enter in to this giant snail and explore it as a sort of living dungeon, which I think is always a cool and fun concept. Next, we have the Tartaro, which I believe was sort of featured and previewed in Knock Issue 3. And they're sort of one-eyed like ogre shepherds, a bit like the old cyclops of legends who roam the wild hills and mountains of the Pyrenees. We're told they're grotesque nine-foot humanoids of low to average intelligence with a single eye. Long muscular arms used to run, especially on steep terrain. They're experts at throwing rocks like a lot of giants, but they're pretty slow-witted and can be tricked by clever characters. However, they're also uh, fond of a wager and a bit prone to gambling. Each Tartaro has a s sort of small suite of weird powers they can use. And there's a D6 table in here to determine that. And each Tartaro has 1D3 of the powers in question, which can range from the ability to 
have a charming mellifluous voice to basically laser beams out of their eyes to belching out foul poisonous fumes. We're told that Tataros often trade milk and sheep cheese to the Lamanac, who are wild imps in exchange for magical trinkets. And we get a little table for some sort of magical trinkets that the Tartaros might possess. We then get some additional facts about them and some hooks. Next is the Bad Patchy, who is a master blacksmith living in a solitary hills not far from Bilbao. His reputation is so terrifying, even the devil treads carefully when walking by Patchy's house. This seems to be a unique creature. It's a human blacksmith who hates everyone and everything but his forge and his work. A truly evil person, but fortunately for everyone else, he has no interest in the rest of the world just in doing his job. And he's such so evil that this like, malevolent aura rolls off him and he can regenerate wounds so he's very difficult to kill. He has a beloved hammer called Maula, which was gifted to him by wicked dwarves, and he is in possession of a magical fig tree that has numerous properties from its sap to its fruit, which are detailed here. And obviously as a master crafter, a master blacksmith, there's a lot of treasure knocking around him. And we get a short dungeon which covers Patchy's house. And it's a very simple map. It's only sort of like nine chambers or so. But it's still very interesting and adds a nice little bit of flavour. Although I'm not sure how much use I personally tend to get out of unique monsters. I tend to prefer monsters that are a bit more sort of general that I can give my my own sort of spin on. But it's nice to have uh, something with a bit more of a unique personality in there. And I could easily make this into a slightly more generic monster if I wanted to without difficulty. After all, it's easier, in my opinion, to take a few things away from a monster rather than add more to it. Next up, we have the Araguzes, who are small humanoid fairies who haunt seaside caves. They can bestow curses upon people, and they are three foot tall, paunchy fairy gnomes with long white beards braided with seaweed and webbed feet. We have the Perilesric, who are part of Slavic folklore. They are, it is a fiery serpent, a creature that takes form of a loved one you had wronged. It feeds on regrets and broken dreams. So I'm getting a bit of a, of a sort of like siren vibe off it. We have this bizarre image here of this golden serpent with this aged human head with this lank, greasy hair on it. We're told that it's a 30-foot long snake with a human face that is bathed in blinding light. It only takes this form to escape through the air and start searching for a new victim. So obviously it can fly. We're told that when it's in snake form, the creature flies at an uncanny speed. It is described as lightning fast, although it can assume other forms. And the special ability they give it for that is called a visage of love. It's able to become the exact copy of a deceased loved one. This is not an illusion and cannot be dissipated. We get some rumours, a D8 table telling you who its next victim might be. And at any point when you encounter it, because it spends so little time in its actual form, there's a D12 table 
to describe what it looks like when you see it. And that could be anything from a famous comedian, a cook, a court jester to an old nemesis of the player party. And I think that's a really interesting idea. You know, if you wanted to have a sort of a bit of a side quest or a bit of a break from your main thing, what if the player characters are sort of tracking down their nemesis or an NPC they've been in touch with, notice they're behaving a little bit strangely, and eventually they're able to piece together that it's actually one of these creatures assuming the form of the ally or the nemesis, at which point you have to say, well, who's the uh, who's the person who loves that person that they're trying to prey on? And you could spin a lot of interesting plot from that. I think this is a really interesting creature and is one of my favourites in the preview document. We then have the Hellwagon, which is a a strange sort of, I suppose, demonic uh, chariot or wagon, if you will. It says in the description that in eastern French villages and the hazy streets of German towns and in the Netherlands countryside, everyone feared to hear the wheels of the Hellwagon preying on those lost on the road or in city streets. This devilish chariot was said to kidnap them and drag their souls to hell, which... If you're running an Infernal campaign, great. Or you want a sort of Wild Hunt-esque encounter, that could be pretty cool. We get a, a sort of chart where you can roll on to determine precisely what the hell a wagon looks like. It could be a peasant's wagon, a royal-looking coach, or a black stone mounted on four wheels. Uh, with, you also get a chart for who's riding it, from demons to orcs dressed as postal officers, which is pretty funny up to ghosts, mummies, or chaos dwarves. The Hellwagon is a carriage manned by demons coming from another dimension. Its appearance varies according to the culture and the place that it is encountered, as does the appearance of the crew. One thing that never changes, though, the shroud of red mist that always seems to surround it, and the ghostly appearance of the horses pulling it. To avoid unnecessary headaches, the preview document advises us to consider the Hellwagon as a single monster, each demon being one of its appendages, all acting at the same time. And I think that's a wise decision for a monster like this, which probably isn't going to be a long-term antagonist. It's probably going to be there for an encounter or two, and then sort of exit stage left. So you really want to keep the complexity down to a minimum. So I'm glad to see that's how they've gone on with this. We get some details on the wagon itself telling us that it can only be damaged by blessed weapons and holy water if destroyed it disappears leaving its passengers behind we get a bit of detail on the crew and the horses we get some hooks and we also get a chart that we can roll on a d20 chart to describe who's the current captive of the hell wagon as it rolls past we get the lavulu which is a deeply malicious beast and apparently it was so malicious that Noah refused to take it on board the Ark. However, the wingless dragon survived the flood. Again, it's another unique monster, probably the last of her kind, and this doesn't do anything to lighten her mood. And we get this bizarre-looking sort of insectoid-like dragon creature here, breathing fire at this shield-bearing woman. We get some lovely hooks and again a lot of legend and lore associated with it which I'm not going to go into now because it would make this video vastly long and we're just trying to do a quick look through this but I have read through this material it's very interesting calls from a variety of different mythologies 
and fairy stories, legends, myths, fables, whatever you want to call them, from around the world. And I think it's really cool because some of the stuff in here, like uh, the Woolpit Green Children, I'm very familiar with. Other stuff, like Lavalu, I really am not familiar with at all. So it's great to sort of expand your horizons and take in a little bit more from around the globe. We get a map of the Beast's Lair and, of course, its stat block. I'm pleased to see that in the best traditions of OSR games everywhere, the lair includes a fungus cave. And where would an old school game be without some of those magic mushrooms? Then we go on to, again, another one of my favourites, one I'm more familiar with from Suffolk, England, the Green Children of Woolpit. And without going into the full sort of myth here, essentially some children were discovered in a hollow or a briar patch in some of the legends. They were coloured green, their hair was green, skin green, etc. And they claimed to come from a land far away. Eventually one of them passed away and the other sort of lost their green coloration and was adopted into human society. Always been a very interesting legend. We get some stats here. We also get some details on St. Martin's land, which is where they claimed to come from. To hear them tell it, this place was cold and dimly lit, so much so they were pained by the light and the heat of eastern England. Which, let's face it, aside from at the moment where it's boiling outside, England's not normally known for being like hot and sunny. We get a D6 chart that you can roll on to determine what St. Martin's land is like. And we also get some details on some of the items they bought with them from St. Martin's Lands, which have certain magical powers lingering about them. We're told that, as I said earlier, one of the mysterious visitors to Woolpit learned to eat human food, lost a green colour, learned English and gradually assimilated. She worked for a few years as a servant before marrying a man from the nearby town of Bishop's Lynn. Her descendants are alive today. Maybe you might be one of them. And then there's a list of 10 signs that you might have a bit of the green in you. And that may range from a greenish tinge to your skin, so pretty obvious, to your middle and ring fingers being exactly the same size, to dark adapted eyes, or a fiery temper, because the, the young girl of the two, who was the one who survived and assimilated, was reputed to have an extremely fiery temper. And we get some lovely hooks for these as well. And like I said, this is... Again, probably one of my, my second favourite in this book. We then get Piaut Chant, beautiful fairies who live underground. The Piaut Chants only meddle with the affairs of mortals whose crops take over the wood. A curse makes them dangerous when the moon is dark. We're told they're nocturnal, one to two foot tall imps looking like scrawny humans, except for a long snout and mole-like incisors. They use insect claws and shells to make weaponry and armour. They live in a gallery of networks they dig under pastoral lands, linking their communities together. They normally prey on crops that encroach on the forest, but try not to confront mortals directly, except when a vendetta is declared. And we're also told that the curse of the dark moon causes them to become bloodthirsty killers. As they consider this as a shameful curse, Piot chants tend to stay on the ground on these nights, apart from very few exceptional circumstances. 
We're also told that if a character is unlucky enough to badly harm one of them, the vengeance of the Piot Chants will pursue them relentlessly. Wherever they are, the imps spy on them, following them, using their vast network of tunnels around the world. And these are the vendettas that they declare against their enemies. Again, we get a sample there with a lovely little, fairly simple, but lovely little map and some hooks. Next, we have the Boetata from Brazil, a giant sentient serpent on whose scales the history of the world is carved. Its legend was originally told by the Tupi Guarani, a large tribe of indigenous people from Brazil. And again, a lovely piece of artwork here. And one of the things I'm really liking about this preview document as I'm reading it, and one of the things I like about Nock as well, is that despite the fact they've gone for a very sort of art-led direction, it never interferes with the readability of the document. It's still very clear despite numerous colour changes and stuff like that. It doesn't interfere with the legibility. And I've sometimes found that an issue with some RPG products that lean a bit more in this art-heavy direction. But I'm glad that's not the case with the Folklore Bestiary. So we get to the stats here for the Boetata. It's immune to mundane damage, has keen sight and smell, can let out a 30 foot long flame jet five times a day, can constrict like a normal serpent, and also has the abilities of sorcery and near infinite knowledge. We have a few different tables. So one is what does the Boetata want? And it could be Oh, it's a learned of a creature whose eyes it's never tasted, and it wants to feast down on those exquisite opalidopolis. It has heard of an ancient book brought to this world by a being from another dimension, and it wants it. Two, it ate the eyes of a being that came from the future and saw its own death. Now it wants to prevent it from happening. We have other tables saying, what is it doing? Why do you seek it? What secrets can you find in its house? And what offerings are life forgotten in its cavern? We're told that the eyes of the ancient serpent have absorbed the light from the eyes of all its victims over the ages. If you take one of its eyes and insert it in the place of a missing eye, you gain various magical abilities. And we get some additional hooks. We then have the Da'u, which is a creature that lives on the slopes of every French mountain. It's a well-adapted creature that is a peaceful goat-like grazer. Famous for having shorter legs on one side of their body, condemning them to walk on slopes in one direction and never to turn back. And we get the stat block there, some spoils from the hunt if you hunt this creature, some hooks, and again a lovely piece of artwork. We get Kama and Bracker Cruz. It's a disembodied evil leg sporting an eye and a maw. We know about it from old stories coming from lands and Gascony regions of France. The Braca Cruz is its arm variation. The stories of the Golden Leg and Glutonia are still told today in different versions to scare children. In Gaston, Kama means leg, Braca means arm, and Cruz means raw. So these are disembodied carnivorous limbs, effectively. And we're told it's a decomposing leg with an eye at the knee and a mouthful of sharp teeth. The Braca Cruz is an arm with the eyes at the elbow and the mouth at the shoulder. These horrors are born from the anger of a dead person whose body was desecrated shortly after their burial. They restlessly go in search of the culprit and all those who profited from the profanation, consuming whoever stands in their way. Next we have Jack in Irons from North Yorkshire in England, a revenant ogre covered in chains and bearing many severed heads, haunting the knights of the high moors. 
It's a putrefying 13-foot ogre with a, a porcine sort of piggy-looking face and sticking out tusks. It still wears the chains that bound it in life. And this reminds me of the sort of Christmas Carol bit here, you know, where Jacob Marley turns up and he's like, these are the chains I forged in life. We get an encounter and reaction table. We get, we are told that the Jack and Irons chains is a sacred relic brought back to Old Byland from Flanders by Viking raiders that has certain abilities if it can be lifted. And then we get a D8 chart of mummified heads for the heads that they carry in their chains that give various special abilities. We then have the Shuka or Black Shook, a large hound-like creature said to come straight from hell, which is often depicted as an evil creature, but also sometimes in legends helps lost travellers. We're told it's a large hound about three foot tall with hair so dark it could be made of night. It leaves burning tracks behind it and seems to be half made of fire. It can appear to help or doom. No one really knows what the motivation is. We then get an interesting aside, a sort of little like mini hex map, where it talks about the Fenland landscape of eastern England, where you might find the, the Black Shook. And we get a, a sort of, like I said, a little sort of mini hex map here, showing an area of marsh, farmland and stream with a number of interesting encounters. And this could be very easily dropped into any campaign. So it's nice to see this here. Not only does it give a little bit of context to the the Black Shook that was mentioned a couple of pages ago, but also it's a lovely just bit of extra value that would add a lot to anyone who wants to add a marshy area to their campaign. We then get a section on the people of the Holy City, who are sinister folk apparently, silent figures watching from the trees. We're told that they are never seen during the day and at night their pallid skin almost glows in the moonlight. Their eyes are set in dark hollow sockets and their irises are pale red. They dress in clean but faded clothing that reflects the fashion of a previous generation. Clearly human but also a little bit something else as well. They move with an eerie stillness. Although we're told they're not undead or at least not completely but there's something more or perhaps a less than mortal and we get some details on the holy city from where they're alleged to come from and that's it for this preview copy of the the folklore bestiary thanks very much to the merry mushman for sending that to me i've very much enjoyed reading it as i've said i'm going to put a link to the kickstarter down below i've already backed it but i've got to say having looked at this preview copy i'm more glad than ever that i have done because there's some really interesting monsters in here and the tie-ins to real world mythology and actual beliefs lend a greater sort of weight to these creatures as far as i'm concerned than just something that's been randomly like thrown together by a designer obviously the designers of this book have put their own spin on things but they've been pulling from sort of real world legendary some of which i knew like the the children of Woolpit and uh, black shook some of which i didn't know so it's been great from that point of view and i can't wait to see the full book to see all the rest of the creatures that are on offer and to start using them in my old school essential campaign and although i'm looking at the osc version here, i'm sure the fifth edition version is equally as good 
if you're looking for some new and interesting monsters in your game. And don't get me wrong, I know we've all, any experienced gem worth their salt has got besteries coming out of their ears. There's no shortage of books with monsters in for various RPG systems, certainly not D&D. But a lot of the time, as I said earlier, they just feel like random filler or sort of odd collections of abilities and appearances thrown together. Now, while the monsters in this book are certainly odd, as I say, they draw from real-world mythology, fables, and legends. And to my mind, this just gives them that extra sense of weight and history behind them. And it's also very interesting to be able to read the legends associated with them. So if you have an interest in ancient mythology and you want to bring a bit of that into your RPG campaign, or you just love some good monsters with great art, professional layout, and very interesting writing, Hell, if you just want some great maps and additional hooks and plot stuff that you can drop into your games, I really advise you back the Kickstarter if you can. Like I say, there'll be about a week as of the time of recording left on the Kickstarter. I'll put a link in the description. I'm sure after the Kickstarter is finished that this book will probably be available in PDF and perhaps hard copy. So if you're watching this later and the Kickstarter's already finished, hopefully you'll still get an opportunity to buy it in the future. And I really would recommend you picking up a copy. I've had such good fun reading the preview that I really can't wait to get my grubby mitts on the full version of it. So there you go. That is my opinion on the folklore bestiary presented by the Merry Mushman of Knockfame. I really advise you, if you have an, a, at all an interest in folkloric monsters, go out and grab yourself a copy and back that Kickstarter if there's still time to do that. So I'd love to hear how you guys incorporate sort of a folklore and mythology into your games do you just go with the standard monsters do you try and build up your own personal mythology or like myself as you can see i've got a bookshelf back there full of various reference works on different mythology do you try and pull on inspiration from this in your games i'd love to hear what you have to say on the subject and if you want to get in touch you can do so in a number of different ways you can drop us a voicemail message using either speakpipe or anchor there'll be a link in the description down below or you can send us a message to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com so until we see you again take care stay safe and whatever you're doing have fun catch you later